Greetings and welcome to HPNA's Podcast Corner, your place for hospice and palliative nursing continual learning. I'm your host, Julie Tanner, Certified Hospice and Palliative Care Registered Nurse and Manager of Nursing Education for HPNA. Thank you for joining today's education. In this episode, we offer our listeners a framework to explore nursing advances in LGBTQ-inclusive hospice and palliative care. Nina Barrett, palliative care nurse practitioner and a member of HPNA, frames the unique health needs of the LGBTQ palliative care patient, including challenges regarding both disclosure and advanced care planning. Nina calls to light the health disparities affecting the LGBTQ population, their historical roots, and the extra challenges facing transgender patients. This episode delivers concise, actionable approaches to facilitate practice change by incorporating these evidence-based strategies to provide palliative nursing care consistent with our patients' values, preferences, views, and beliefs. Please join Nina in her presentation in this previously recorded webinar. Thank you. Okay. Um, I want to uh, say hello to everyone and thank you for tuning in to this webinar. So the um, Journal Club review um, that this uh, talk is going to be based on is based on a book chapter that I co-wrote with my mentor and all-around hero and uh, palliative care rock star, uh, Dorothy Houlihan of um, NYU. I find myself asking myself every day almost what would, what would Dorothy do. And the main points um, of what I want to convey to you all today is that um, all nurses should be familiar with and equipped to address the distinct challenges that may arise when caring for LGBTQ patients. Palliative care must be provided in a culturally competent manner and diverse populations do have diverse needs. Um, LGBTQ patients have unique health issues, including higher predisposition to certain chronic illnesses, um, and health disparities that exist are rooted in and reflective of a long history of discrimination and bias. And for effectively serving the LGBTQ population requires clinicians to understand the cultural context of their patients' lives and then to modify their practice policies and environments to be welcome, welcoming, sensitive, respectful and inclusive. Um, when Dorothy asked me to co-write this book chapter with her a couple of years ago, I was pretty surprised to learn that there was really not very much written about the specific intersection of palliative and hospice care um, and providing this type of care specifically to the LGBTQ population. Um, if there's only one thing that you all remember from this talk, um, I hope that it's if you want to learn more or need a definitive research resource on this topic, it's this book um, that's been published in the interve intervening years by Kimberly Aquaviva. Um, I just can't recommend it highly enough. I feel like it is the definitive text on this issue, and she really is an expert and is very, um, very accessible. She has a website. You can email her questions. Um, so she's the, the real hero here for writing this book, and I'm so happy that it's been published and there's a better um, resource than just our um, one book chapter. Um, so back to basics. 
Um, I assume that most of you listeners know what the LGBTQ acronym stands for, um, but this acronym does seem to be getting longer and longer. Um, and when I co-wrote this chapter a few years ago, I really had to fight to get the Q included in the title. Um, but now you hear LGBTQ, that feels pretty standard. Um, the Q stands for queer, which is an umbrella term that includes people who want to identify as queer and or who feel somehow outside of the societal norms in regards to gender and sexuality. Um, and I actually feel like when I said the, the acronym was getting longer, you hear now G LGBTQIA, the I stands for intersex, um, the A stands for um, asexual. Um, again, an important distinction needs to be made between sex and gender specifically. Um, this is just kind of 101, but I think it bears, uh, bears saying um, that sex is biologically and physiologically determined. It's a continuum with male and female as the two endpoints. So it's more complicated than you would think. Um, we all know the X and Y chromosomes determine sex, um, but there are also um, sex monosomies, people who are just 46X or 46Y. Um, there are polysomies, people who have uh, XXX or XXY and so on, translocations. Um, babies can be born with intersex, uh, an intersex condition, which that happens about 1 in 1,500 or to 2,000 live births. So sex is more about the physical body, um, and gender is determined by sociocultural expectations, roles, and behaviors. Um, it's a social construct that varies across cultures, geography, and history. It's really more about how the person inhabiting the physical body feels, acts, and is read by the society or community around them. Um, I hear all the time when a baby is born, what's the baby's um, gender? And um, that's definitely too soon <laughs> to tell uh, what their gender is um, at birth. It, you know, we can say more about their sex at birth, but not, um, not gender. Um, so I want to start off by talking about what makes the LGBTQ population unique from a health perspective and some things to keep in mind when taking care of patients that identify as LGBTQ. Um, in the past, Caring for the LGBTQ population was largely focused on patients with HIV and AIDS. Um, and HIV and AIDS does still affect the LGBTQ population disproportionately, especially um, men of sex with men or male to female trans people. However, HIV and AIDS uh, is now largely managed as a chronic illness, which of course is a wonderful thing. Um, and certain portions of the LGBTQ population are disposed to specific chronic or life-limiting illnesses. For instance, there's um, the higher rates of smoking among gay men and lesbians is correlated with increased rates of lung and bladder cancers. Uh, lesbians are more likely to get endometrial and breast cancer um, than straight women. Um, and in general, LGBTQ elders have higher rates of disability than their heterosexual peers. Um, it's thought that negative social attitudes, widespread discrimination and stigma, higher rates of sexual assault, and physical and psychological victimization contribute to the fact that LGBTQ people are at greater risk of suffering from a myriad of stress-sensitive mental health issues, including anxiety, depression, PTSD, and suicidality. 
Um, and these are really disturbing findings. Some statistics that we came across when researching our book chapter <clears throat> were that 82% of LGBTQ-identified people have been victimized at least once in their lives. 63% have experienced verbal harassment, and 43% have been threatened with violence. Um, there's, this population is also at increased risk of alcohol and drug abuse and, and the physical and mental disorders that tend to stem from this kind of abuse. There's been a long history of stigmatization of LGBTQ people, both in the larger societal context as, as well as how they were sometimes viewed and treated by, medical, by the medical and psychiatric community. Um, LGBTQ people at different points in history have been subject to traumatizing medical, intervention, medical interventions such as castrations or electroshock therapy. Homosexuality was listed as a sociopathic personality disorder in the DSM until the 70s, and having a transgender identity was also listed in the DSM as a psychological disorder until just about five years ago. Um, for those of us who serve um, more of an elderly population, it's important to keep in mind that LGBTQ elders may have experienced more intense discrimination over time, and this can lead to increased reluctance to disclose personal information to their care providers, um, which we'll talk about a little bit more later. Um, as far as social supports, LGBTQ elders are more likely to be poor and isolated and are three to four times less likely to have children that can help support them. Um, they're twice as likely to live alone compared to their straight peers. They're more likely to feel unwelcome or actually be unwelcome or mistreated in various healthcare settings, including nursing homes. The effects of this lack of social support and isolation are detrimental and lead to higher rates of depression, frequent hospitalizations, poverty, poor nutrition, delay in seeking medical care, and premature mortality. Uh, assisting LGBTQ people in advanced care planning can be more complex than with straight people. Um, as I said on a previous slide, LGBTQ elders are more likely to be unmarried or unpartnered, childless, and or estranged from biological families. LGBTQ elders tend to rely on families of choice. Family of, families of choice are friends and other community members that provide social connections and support. These ties can be incredibly strong. Um, in a response to a memo from President Obama in 2010, CMS made changes to their policy regarding hospital visitation, making it clear that participating hospitals may not restrict, limit, or otherwise deny visitation privileges based on sexual orientation or gender identity. However, even with this CMS policy change, some institutions policies don't recognize the legitimacy of these relationships. Um, and as far as, as marriage, um, you know, I've, I've heard a lot of people say, well, you know, LGBTQ people can get married now. There's really no more barrier, barriers as, as far as that goes. Um, and yes, uh, same-sex marriage has recently been legalized. In 2015, the Supreme Court overturned the Defense of Marriage Act legalizing marriage for same-sex couples. However, it has only been legal for a few years. 
um, many LGBTQ people are just not partnered and many LGBTQ folks that are partnered either haven't gotten married yet or may never choose to avail themselves of this right um, for a myriad of reasons. Um, in many states, uh, an estranged biological family member's decision can override that of a same-sex partner or an LGBTQ patient's family of choice. Um, for that reason, it's crucially important that LGBTQ people fill out advanced care planning paperwork, um, especially healthcare proxy um, paperwork to avoid a situation where an estranged family member's decision can override um, that of a same-sex partner or whoever else the um, patient would have chosen. On an earlier slide, I talked about the long history of stigmatization and mistreatment of LGBTQ people by the medical community. And this has resulted in the fact that more than 20% of LGBTQ people have not disclosed their sexual orientation and or gender identity to their physician. Um, and this lack of disclosure can lead to distress or compromised care. We all know that recognition and acceptance is an essential component of the provision of holistic, multidimensional, patient-centered palliative care. Um, it's especially important when patients are at the end of life and may need assistance completing life review, achieving closure, or advanced care planning. I'll talk more in later slides about specific tips for creating a safe space for patients to feel comfortable sharing this aspect of their identities, but overall, um, be supportive, but don't force the issue or pressure parents, patients to speed the pace of disclosure. Um, asking gender neutral or other open-ended questions such as, who do you consider family? Who is family to you? Do you currently have a significant other or partner? How would you like to be addressed? What name would you like to be called? Um, and then use the patient's own wording, terms, and language when describing their own sexual orientation, gender identity, and relationships. Um, I have a friend who considers themselves non-binary with regards to gender and has asked that people refer to them using the pronoun they, um, and just like I have been just now. And I'm not going to pretend that that's necessarily easy, that he, she binary has been so ingrained into our heads from the time we learn how to talk. Um, and you just have to be really mindful of your words, and I've messed up on a couple of occasions. Um, but I think as palliative care providers, we're used to being really careful with our word choices. Like, none of us are going around saying that we're going to unplug grandma. We say something more like we're going to discontinue life support and allow for a natural death. So I think we're sort of better equipped to be really mindful of our word choices, and it really is a, a matter of mindfulness and and practice. Um, I want to talk for a minute just about the transgender population or gender nonconforming population because I really feel that it deserves extra attention. The transgender and gender nonconforming population is truly a minority within a minority. Um, these people experience more discrimination, stigma, and disparities than nearly any other minority group, period. Um, there's very low ex life expectancy for trans people, especially for trans women of color. I think I heard recently that it's in the, um, these people are only, life expectancy I think is in the, their 30s. Um, 
40% of trans people don't have a regular healthcare provider, often rely on emergency care and unsupervised self-care to meet their needs. There haven't been any studies that, I, that I've come across that are specifically about trans and gender nonconforming people in the hospice or palliative care setting, although there have been some case reports that this population of people do fear that their gender identity will not be respected in a hospice or long-term care facilities. So as far as the nursing implications, nursing is the largest workforce in the healthcare system. We spend the most time with patients, um, and I feel like we really need to spearhead the effort to address and meet the needs um, of the LGBTQ population. Um, and it's not just the ethical or human rights imperative to make sure that you're providing uh, culturally sensitive care to this population. It's a legal requirement now as well. Um, in 2011, the Joint Commission issued a new requirement for accreditation that mandates that hospitals show specific evidence of how the unique needs of LGBTQ patients are being met. Um, So this is the part of the presentation that's going to be a little bit more instructive, um, where I outline some concrete things that can be done to improve care for LGBTQ patients in any healthcare setting. And obviously, this goes for hospice and palliative care settings as well. Um, it begins with a close examination of the environment, again, in all practices, hospitals, nursing homes, hospices, um, to look for uh, signage, making sure that signage is inclusive, and is there a gender-neutral bathroom um, that's easily accessible on each floor or unit, um, taking a look at intake forms um, and social histories, taking good social histories that include non-straight sexual orientations and non-binary, not just male or female, gender identities. Um, asking patients about pronoun preference, and also disclosing your own. More and more I'm seeing uh, emails that, um, with the signatures that just below the name, they just simply say, um, you know, the person's name, and she or she, hers, or his, or he, his, or some people go by Z or they. Um, making available uh, educational brochures on LGBTQ topics and waiting areas. Um, including photos of LGBTQ patients or couples and existing materials, um, posting the non-discrimination policy in a visible high-traffic area. I challenge all of you to go back to your workplaces and see how easily you can find where that non-discrimination policy is posted. Um, and it's not just in the facility, it's also on your website. Um, I followed my own directive here, and I recently um, Googled my own organization that I work for now, um, their non-discrimination policy, and I found that it said that our facilities do not exclude people or treat them differently, differently because of race, color, national origin, age, disability, sex, ability to pay, or citizenship status. So um, you might notice that there was no mention of sexual orientation or gender identity. Um, and that's what you can find if you <laughs> Google, when I Googled uh, that non-discrimination policy in my own organization. So that is certainly the, the hill that I'm going to die on. It's really my task, I feel like, uh, in the coming weeks and months. And I already have a meeting set up with our um, CEO to talk about revising um, 
that non-discrimination policy. I think in 2018, it's really unacceptable not to include sexual orientation or gender identity in those um, non-discrimination statements. So how aware is your own staff? Are you, are your students, if you're a teacher or an instructor, of your own inherent biases or their own inherent biases? Um, we're not a diverse bunch as nurses. Um, I recently uh, participated in one of these webinars with the results of the nursing workforce survey um, for hospice and palliative care, and it is mostly um, white women. I don't think people's um, sexual orientations were included in that. Um, but does your staff demographically reflect the community that you're serving? Are your hiring practices fair and transparent? Um, if you Google it, you can find, find tons of resources and videos and trainings online about re revealing those inherent biases. These are biases that you might not even be aware of and um, some strategies on how to resolve them. Um, raising staff awareness of LGBTQ issues and how important it is to sensitively treat this vulnerable population at one of the most vulnerable times in their lives. Um, I would suggest conducting ongoing meetings with open discussions of personal beliefs and perspectives and staff values um, and sort of weeding out those potentially harmful attitudes and biased beliefs um, as much as possible. Um, looking around your organization, are there outward signs of openness? Um, like, are there rainbow flags posted? Um, the American Medical Association and the Gay and Lesbian Medical Association um, on their websites can um, provide some specific uh, suggestions about um, how to make the environments more welcoming. Um, so Kimberly Aquaviva, who wrote that aforementioned um, wonderful book, um, she summarized the interventions um, that I've just outlined as four planks in the bridge to LGBTQ um, patients, um, if it helps to simplify or remember it. Um, the first plank, and as we know, this is certainly my homework for my own employer, is looking up that non-discrimination statement, um, making sure that that's inclusive, easily to easy to find, um, clearly posted. The second plank is looking into employee benefits. Again, it all starts with your own organization. Are the orientations and trainings and benefits inclusive of LGBTQ employees? Um, are there health benefits not just for uh, spouses, but also for um, domestic partners? Is there parental leave for non-birth parents or parents by adoption or fostering? Um, I'll look at those intake forms and on the next slide, I'll talk about specific language to use. Um, and then looking at the marketing and community engagement. So some examples of inclusive intake questions. I named a few before, um, but it, instead of asking more um, pointed questions, but what name would you like to be called? Sometimes people's names on their IDs or birth certificates are not the name that they're going by now. Um, what gender pronouns do you go by? What sex were you assigned at birth? What gender do you identify as now? Uh, what words or words, word or words would you use to describe your sexual orientation or gender identity? Um, 
And again, I practice in the real world too. There's plenty of patients' rooms that I go into that I I just wouldn't ask those questions, that it, it really is quite obvious um, what the person's uh, gender identity is for a lot of reasons, but I would encourage all of us and myself to actually not make too many assumptions because um, I think I've, we'd also be surprised at sometimes people's gender identities and sexual orientations are not what we would um, assume. So to try not to make assumptions. So as far as implications for nursing education, policy, and research, um, as far as education, I believe that um, that nursing faculty really have a mandate to review and revise curricular content to better address LGBTQ issues. Um, there are still some serious deficits in addressing LGBTQ issues in nursing curricula. Um, I know in my RN education, I don't really think there was any, um, any education on this specifically. Um, there was in my NP program. Um, but nursing programs at every level should include a values clarification. I think that the earlier this occurs in one's professional education, the more time there is to work on correcting those misconceptions and trying to weed out those biases that can result in substandard treatment for any marginalized groups. Um, as far as policy making goes, hospice and palliative nurses can forge partnerships between existing LGBTQ-specific programs and work to include elder-specific services, health advocacy, advanced care planning into the programs that they already um, are offering to their community. And community input from direct stakeholders really is invaluable in informing the development of these um, programs and policies. And as far as research, um, when looking at the available research, when I was writing this book chapter a few years ago, um, I was surprised by the dearth of studies that are specifically about the LGBTQ population in the hospice and palliative care con context. And I know in general, um, there's never enough palliative care research. Um, it's hard to perform research on any group that's considered um, marginalized or uh, hard, hard to reach. But um, the ongoing research that's uh, happening on aging and palliative care should include sexual orientation and gender identity measures to further define risk, mortality, morbidity. Um, but it's also important to be mindful not to lump all LGBTQ persons into a single sexual minority um, because there really is a huge amount of heterogeneity among this group. Um, by com taking comprehensive, um, oh, sorry. By taking comprehensive and non-judgmental histories, um, educating themselves about appropriate and unique health issues, and reflecting on personal attitudes that might inhibit optimal care. Nurses really can provide compassionate and appropriate care to LGBTQ people. The very nature of palliative care affirms the unique value of all people um, and can best address the multidimensional nature of health issues faced by LGBTQ people who are suffering from serious or advanced illness. And that is the end of my presentation. Wondering if anybody has any questions.
if there aren't any questions, I can sort of throw out um, one um, sort of discussion question and see if people have any input about what they might do in this situation. Um, and I want to say up front that I am borrowing this particular uh, question from a webinar that I watched of Kimberly Aquaviva and the question that she asked her audience. So um, that question is, um, if you were in charge of a nursing home or hospice setting where the standard was that it was double rooms um, and people of the same gender were um, co-roomed in the same room, um, and you knew that you had a transgender patient uh, coming into your facility and you had to decide what room to assign her to, and she was a you know, male to female transgender person, um, would you put her in the room with another female, with a male, a biological male patient? Would you um, block off that room and give them a, a private room? Um, how would you handle that situation? Okay, I might not be the target audience, but would, would it be appropriate to ask the patient what the roommate they would want? Yeah, that's um, definitely um, a good, a good um, thing to do, to say, you know, what do you feel comfortable with? Um, I would say that the answer to that question, I think a lot of people, their instinct would be to sort of try to um, avoid any discomfort or um, just kind of avoid the issue a little bit by giving that person, um, by giving her a private room. In that way, um, it sort of just kind of passes the buck on the issue. But um, I would say that the correct answer, <laughs> if there is such a thing, is to co-house that, co-room that patient with another female um, resident. Um, I think that putting a trans person, sort of isolating them in a room by themselves can uh, lead to um, social isolation and not being part of the social milieu. Um, and I know that some people in the other discussion that I was a part of were worried about, you know, if that person needed to be, you know, changed and was ex the risk of exposing their genitalia to their roommate and any discomfort that that might cause. And I think the answer was that it's on, the onus is on the staff to make sure that that person has privacy when they're being uh, changed by the staff. That's on, that's what, sort of that's on us. Um, and no, no patient, regardless of their um, gender identity, should be exposed to their roommate. Um, so just to really make sure that they maintain their privacy and dignity, but if the policy of the institution is to co-house people of the same gender together, um, those people do have the same gender identity. Is there any sort of any other questions or discussion points? I think I was nervous, so I talked faster than I did when I was practicing, so this has sort of gone by faster than I thought. So. From, I know that it, it was rather recent that people of same gender were allowed to be married legally. So I know in the future we're going to be seeing more of that in healthcare. How do you think that it would be? Do you think they're going to be treated any differently from any other married couple, or do you feel that we'll have sufficient fair treatment for them? That's a good question. 
Um, and I think that might get to more about uh, what my own feelings about our current political climate, um, even though um, there was that Supreme Court um, decision allowing um, same-sex marriage. Um, if you look at the new makeup of the court, there is now a durable conservative um, majority. And as far as I know, there aren't any cases sort of working their way through the lower courts that might overturn that anytime soon. Um, but I think um, I've been a little bit more pessimistic, I guess, about um, the climate of um, the political climate in our country and the amount of division and um, bigotry and hate that are being, um, they were probably there all along, but that are being made more manifest and more clear in the last couple of years. Um, and again, I'm just speaking for my, <laughs> my own self. Um, so I worry that even though sort of on the, on the books, um, that's legal now, um, I do worry about, uh, you know, achieving that, that sort of equity um, in every in every setting. Nina, do you know? Um, has there been any research on why the LGBT community has a lot of these higher health risk issues, or is it just a unknown reason so far? I think it depends on. I think the the overall risk for the stress stress sensitive um, mental health disorders I think are more tied to um, the sort of history and current culture and climate of um, discrimination and uh, victimization that are contributing to that. Um, and then I think higher smoking um, rate contribute to some of those cancer risks. And then um, I don't exactly know what they are, but I, I think uh, lesbians lower rate of um, having being pregnant might contribute to some of those sort of endometrial or breast cancers, but that's um, not my uh, not my expertise. So I don't actually really know. Um, yeah, and I'm, I'm ready for any other questions. How do you handle staff when they have a religious objection to caring for a trans patient? Um, I I haven't encountered that, um, and I think that I would have a hard time um, navigating that. Um, I'm not sure what religion uh, sort of condones discrimination. Um, I would certainly sort of for the sake of the patient, make sure that they, um, that I speak with them and try to resolve whatever that issue is before a trans patient um, arrives. Like I, I would say by the time that a trans patient is actually on the unit or re in the residence, um, in some ways it's too late um, or it, it should have been too late. So I would try to get out ahead of that and make sure that if that sort of um, bias exists in the staff, really examining um, examining why, um, and then trying to provide education, um, because you know discrimination is illegal towards any group, um, including transgender people, 
um, when I interviewed for a job, one of my, my first NP job, um, I thought one of the most interesting interview questions I had or that I received was, you know, is there any population that you feel uncomfortable treating or that you feel that you treat differently? Um, I think just being really open and honest that everybody comes to the table with their own life experience and whole set of um, values that have been transmitted to them, you know, from birth that affect the way they treat people who are different from themselves and acknowledging it and unpacking that, um, like in the here and now for that patient, I would, if, if I don't feel like that staff member um, has been sufficiently re-educated, um, I would not allow them to care for that patient because I think at the end of the day, it's important that that patient has an experience in my hospital or facility that is free from discrimination or bias, but I would think it's a really serious issue if um, there's a staff member who feels like they can't provide um, care to any, any minority population. Is there a list of states where the biological family can override a partner? Oh, that's such a good question. Um, I don't know the answer to that question. I do feel uh, that I'm not as much <laughs> an expert in this topic as I would like to be. Um, I don't know. I know that there's some states, um, I know New York State, if there isn't a specific um, healthcare proxy designated, there's like a whole sort of line of, I think in my mind, I think of it as a line of succession, like it's the spouse, and if it's not a spouse, and it's the oldest child, and so on and so forth. Um, but I learned when I moved out here to Colorado that it's more of a free-for-all state, that it's like an all-interested party where anyone who feels that they want a say in making those decisions um, gets a say. And so I'm much more diligent here about having patients fill out healthcare proxies. Um, and this is, again, particularly important for the LGBTQ population where there may not you know, be a very clear um, healthcare proxy. But I, I actually don't know, but I think it's a really good question. Did any of the research include encounters with chaplains or spiritual care as part of the palliative care? And what did that research say? I don't remember coming across any um, research or, liter or research that was specifically about the spiritual component of providing palliative or hospice care to the LGBTQ population. Um, I would be really interested in seeing it. Um, and there was just such a lack of um, studies about, um, about this population. I think it's a huge area for exploration and research in the future. Um, it's really a rich area for research. It says, what are some of the strategies to raise awareness for LGBTQ patient needs? Um, I'm assuming you mean um, from the from the staff perspective of um, how to um, educate the staff. Um, I think regular meetings with staff um, about um, LGBTQ again first uncovering to see if there's any. Um, biases that exist there, um, 
the AMA and the uh, Gay and Lesbian Medical Association all have um, good trainings about um, providing culturally competent care to this population. Um, so I would look there first. Um, and all those things I said about looking at the environment, I think that that's incredibly important. Um, you know, even a small rainbow flag um, decal in the window, I think um, if you're looking for it and if that's the kind of signal that um, you're welcome and accepted in that facility, I think even little things like that make a huge difference. Um, for people that I know that are transgender, not having to worry about navigating bathrooms, it's a huge issue in their lives. Um, and it's just the, the worry goes away when there's a, just a bathroom, a gender neutral bathroom um, that anyone can go in who needs to use the bathroom. Um, so there's so many um, big and small things that you can do um, to, uh, to make your staff more aware and to make your facility more open and welcoming. This concludes our podcast episode on LGBTQ inclusive palliative care with Nina Barrett. Thank you for listening. For additional information and handouts of this previously recorded webinar, please visit our podcast corner at advancingexpertcare.org. Thank you. Did you know HPNA offers volume discounts on certification exams and HPNA memberships? The Employer Partner Program was established to partner with employers to support your nursing care teams through education and training. To learn more about the Employer Partner Program and find out if your organization qualifies for volume discounts, visit advancingexpertcare.org backslash employer-partner. Thank you.